Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's episode, we speak with Jay Love, a charity sector titan whose profound influence spans four decades and counting. He has developed and led a succession of major software firms serving the nonprofit fundraising world, beginning with Master Software in the 80s, eTapestry at the turn of the century, and Bloomerang starting in 2012. In each case, he identified a problem bedeviling nonprofits, pioneered a solution, and then was a key figure in transforming the way organizations build relationships with supporters. Today, he still continues in that role, serving as Chief Relationship Officer at Bloomerang while advising a rising generation of social good tech pioneers. We begin this conversation hearing about his Indiana roots, the field of dreams he and his brothers built, and his first encounters with philanthropy as chauffeur to one of his college community's major donors. 1982, that's the year that you started with, uh, with Master that, Software? Or? Yes, yes. Okay, well, let's go back before even there, because um, yeah. I, I was a Fun Master user. Wow, well, we got to talk about that then. Okay, well, I wasn't a, a master, fun master user, but uh, <laughs> but that's how I first became acquainted with it. Um, but there there was obviously inspiration that led to that. So I know that you are today in Florida, that you're in Indiana part of the time. Where did it all start for you? Are you from Indiana? Yes, yes. I grew up in north northern eastern Indiana, uh, uh, near a town called Muncie, known for Ball Corporation, Ball Hospital, Ball yeah. State, uh, etc. I was a little country town, a uh, little northwest of Muncie called Gaston, Indiana, uh, and uh, was born in Muncie, but raised in Gaston and uh, then matriculated off after my high school years to Butler University, had a full ride academic scholarship and went off to see what uh, the university life and the, the next stage of my life would hold up for us. What were you studying there? Uh, I started off in pharmacy, but quickly determined that I didn't want to spend every afternoon in uh, labs. So I switched over to business administration and finance. Okay, which seems like it must have been the ultimate fit. But were you one of those people who was always entrepreneurial? Did you have a business? Yes, I, I would think that was the case because my job, my final three years of college, uh, I was a chauffeur for a very wealthy lady driving her Mercedes around. I would call her at 8 a.m. in the morning and we would plan the day around my classes. I would pick her up uh, at one of the high-rise towers near Butler University and take her around. And that became my little business for three years right in college. How did you get that job? Well, uh, a friend of mine at my housing unit had been doing it a little bit part-time and I just formalized it a little bit by going to the next step. Yeah, but it sounds like you had to have um, kind of an awareness that, oh, here's an opportunity. I'm going to seize it. Right. Well, it was sort of that, but no, it was sort of, it was also sort of handed to me and I just made, made it a little bit more formalized and, uh, you know, and made sure that I dressed nicely. I had a nice blue Oxford shirt, a dark blue tie, dark blue pants. And uh, we traveled all over Indianapolis finding all the little things she would like to have for dinner and stuff. And it was, it was great. That sounds like it must have been quite an experience because if you were there, you said on a full ride, then you yep. must have had an appreciation for, you know, for the fact that you were there on a full ride and then you were driving a person around in a limo. Yeah. What was that like? Your scholarship? Well, it, was, it, it showed me that there was a whole nother world of wealth uh, out there. Uh, and I, I think it truly opened my eyes. I'd never seen anybody that was able to live like this. Hmm. And it just, it, it showed a, a small country farm boy that there was a whole lot of the world still to see out there. Okay. Now you said farm boy and I need to know about that. So were, were you actually on a farm? Was your family? It off? was a small farm. It was just about oh, maybe 120 acres and we didn't actually farm it. My father had a construction and roofing company but uh, my uncle farmed the, the fields uh, behind us. But uh, <laughs> my, uh, I, have, I was the oldest of four boys. My uh, youngest, next youngest brother, has, which happened to be named Jeff, we decided one summer that we were going to make some money. And our uncle said, well, you can bid out. This was a 80-acre 
soybean field. Then he said, what would you charge me to pull the weeds out of it? <laughs> and my brother and I put our heads together and we said, you know what? We could both make a hundred dollars here. That would be unbelievable. So we bid Tom at a hundred dollars. And before it was said and done, my dad pitched in and my other brothers, we finally got it done, but that was the hardest hundred dollars I've ever come across in my entire life. <laughs> uh I, you said a little, a little, a uh, little farm of 120 acres, and uh, I, kn I know what that size of farm is like. It's, it's the real thing. You're out there, it, whether you're picking sort of weeds is, or picking apples. That's, yep, yep, yep. that's pretty. It was weird. it, but it was, a, it was a lovely place to grow. We were just outside the outskirts of town, and yeah. we had a full court basketball court and uh, a baseball field that my brothers and I had built, and so oh, wow. our. Our place was where every young man and woman in town that wanted to play sports came out to our house. So we really? we had uh, if we were not helping dad with the business, we were busy running up and down the basketball court or chasing baseballs out in the outfield. So it was it was a lot of fun. It sounds like a three quarter season field of dreams. <laughs> it sort of was. We we literally cut it right up next to the soybean field <laughs> instead of the cornfield. Wow. So was sports a big part of your growing up as well? Because today yeah, yeah. you just yeah, said you just played two hours of tennis. So what? Yes, I did early this morning. Yeah, it, it truly was. I, I was one of those uh, individuals that never was not either practicing or playing a sport for all four seasons. So it was basketball, baseball, track and field, uh, you know, et cetera. So we, you know, although it was a small town and a small school, uh, I really formed a lot of my values doing that during those early years. I know that's a big part of the mythos of Indiana too, really. It yes, is. very much uh, so. Yeah. You, you could not drive through our little town and not see a basketball goal on at least two out of every three driveways. It was, it was pretty remarkable. Sure. And, uh, so now you're playing tennis. I know we'll get there because that seems like a big departure. I mean, I know it's a very serious and hard sport, but it's not the same as basketball. No, it's not. But when you when you're in your late sixties, you, you you've got to make adjustments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so now finally letting you go back to getting out of school, you you made that adjustment. You went from pharmacy to business, and that seems like a great uh, launching point for doing what you eventually did with, of course, with uh, master software. And I'd love to hear that story. But well, I actually started first... off in the, yeah. I started off in the computer industry and, okay. and, and in the mini computer industry. And I was doing that for several years. And I was uh, with a mini computer company and we had made a large sale to a uh, Catholic hospital in Lafayette, Indiana. And the uh, purchasing department had invited me to go to the Purdue, Michigan football game, which happened to be right near the very end of the season. And it had to be the coldest Saturday in the world. And we spent most of the day in an RV rather than in the stands. And there I got introduced to the person that was heading up fundraising for this Catholic hospital. And he said, you know, Jay, it's been a pleasure meeting you today. I just purchased the very first PC-based fundraising program, a product called Fundmaster that you're familiar with, Jay, because I know you mentioned earlier that you were a customer. And he said, this guy's an engineer, nicest guy in the world, but he needs somebody like you to really help take the company nationwide. And over the course of the next three months, I wrote, this is before the days of email, I wrote three, two, two or three page letters trying to convince this gentleman who was the founder and CEO of uh, the software company to bring me on board to head up sales for him. And finally, after about three months of effort, I was able to switch from the mini computer world to the software world and became the head of sales for a little company called Master Software. And that was in 1982. And the very first conference I went to, I always will remember it. We went off to San Diego for the, uh, used to be NAHD, all the hospital development uh, fundraisers. It was in the fall of the year. And we went off to uh, San Diego for that. And I started meeting these wonderful people called professional fundraisers, which I thought, you know, they, they became like family to me. And uh, it was I, I, I felt like, man, I am living a dream uh, being able to work with these individuals and help them raise money for their causes. And honestly, I never thought about doing anything else for the rest of my business career. 
so you had no idea about what that market was like, I guess, before you were already in it. No, no, because as I started to get into it, a few years into it, my wife, who was an elementary music teacher, uh, as our children came along, she retired, but then she went back as a full-time executive director of a public high school foundation. Mm. And all of a sudden, I became very aware of running an endowment campaign, a capital campaign, and it became much more than a job. I now became much more fluent with what these people were talking about. It wasn't just providing a technological tool. I started thinking about, wow, okay, we're, we're providing technology, but could we really help them do their jobs better, faster, easier uh, by doing that? And that's what led to the formation of you know, e-tapestry and Bloomerang and later companies was that desire to help make their jobs in life a much easier. Uh, it, it strikes me as you talk about that, that again, you're from a place where community is a big deal, uh, whether right. it's all the kids in town coming to play on the, on the baseball field that you, you made at your, your family's uh, uh, house or whether it's, you know, anything else about that community. Uh, and it's, I understand that, that area well in the Midwest. Um, but you didn't mention philanthropy being a part of that. And then you were in the middle of it. So did you have a concept though of, of a, uh, Community organizations um, of you know whether it's just just barely just barely we uh, the town obviously we were members of of the local church and Mm -hmm. the concept of tithing was there and my father was involved with the Lions Club in the community Uh, so uh, and the the Lions Club always ran a community fair right before we went back to school each year and my dad was a sponsor and stuff of that so. so I got to be involved in it a little bit, but it, it wasn't till I was chauffeuring for this lady at school. And I realized that her family had donated one of the main areas of the Indianapolis Art Museum, the big oh. fountain at the center. That was the Sutphin Fountain. And I was working for Mrs. Sutphin. And so uh, I realized then that uh, people of wealth and means can give back to the community in a very meaningful manner uh, to do that. And she enlightened me to all the different charities that she was helping uh, Mm -hmm. throughout in central Indiana and throughout the Midwest and throughout the world, to be honest with you. And that's interesting too, because whether it's the Lions Club that you mentioned to the church, that they often don't have that infrastructure. They may not have the staffing or the budget either, but they don't have the kind of thing that now at this point in your career, you were, uh, selling, but I, I have a feeling you were doing more than selling um, at, at, uh, at Fundmaster, bringing that to the market, getting to know these people, because each of those had staff, they had some kind right. of budget, and they were deciding, we're going to build the infrastructure to talk to people like her. So right. you just kind of left us off there in San Diego. Um, as you started to get to know this this community, and you also saw what products and services could do to we often say professionalize them. That's probably not the right word. What right. What did you start to see was possible? Well, I think the first time I really said that it's far beyond just selling and, and having a career to earn income for myself and my family and uh, et cetera, was uh, the, the company was acquired by a company in Boston, Massachusetts by the name of Epsilon. You may remember Epsilon J. Yes. And one of the first things we did, I was right into a strategic planning session, and let, we decided let's create, based upon the reporting they were doing for these large databases, let's create a set of executive reports that really told, uh, that really told the fundraiser what was going on. And one of the best reports that was in that I always remember was figuring out the cost per dollar raised and figuring out how much they were spending on each aspect of fundraising. How much did a dollar raised by direct mail versus a dollar raised by special events versus a dollar raised by major gifts. And that report all of a sudden opened my eyes and I said, wow, if we can figure out what are the costs associated for this and and identify what gifts and pledges came in for each of these campaigns and appeals, we could figure out this magical cost per dollar raised. And all of a sudden, it enlightened me and we figured out, wow, just how powerful major gifts were. But major gifts are reliant upon 
people coming up from special events and direct mail to become major gift prospects. But then all of a sudden it becomes a, you know, a very, very worthwhile endeavor. And, you know, the, the cost per dollar raise becomes very significant there uh, for them. And that was among several different reports. We came out with a packet of about eight to 10 reports that really revolutionized fundraisers saying we could analyze this. Yeah. And I think it was the beginning start of, of when I was involved with starting eTapestry and with Boomerang of going another step beyond and saying, you know, we can help you get a little bit percentage better every year, for instance, in improving retention of donors and saying, you know, if you can improve your retention of your donors one or 2% every year, what you're at 10 years later is a significant difference for the organization and funding of your mission. Something that strikes me as you're talking is um, there's a lack of collective memory about almost everything in society, but even things that happened fairly recently. This was the 80s. That's not ancient history. Um, and you were building reports. Well, to a lot of people, it is well, ancient history, Jay. That's <laughs> to, for sure. To some, not to, not to others. Yeah. But yeah. You, you were building reports that now, I think if people don't know what it costs to raise a dollar by their different activities, they'd say, well, what, what are you doing? We, we right. have to well, know, right? Yeah, these executive reports of that day back in the you know mid late 80s have become the dashboards of today you know nobody everybody's really excited about various dashboards and you can have a dashboard for the special event person a dashboard for you know the direct mail person a dashboard for the major gift officer etc well those were first you know uh, just executive reports that went far beyond just showing a listing of all the donors and their gifts and that I'm sure, um, in addition to being transformational for organizations, but who didn't know, who didn't really know what it was costing or what else they could do, it also must have changed the nature of how they interacted with donors, both positively and negatively. I, I, guess, I right? would hope they would. Uh, you, you often wondered back in the 80s and 90s, you got to remember, I still remember when email came out and certain mm -hmm. executive directors and CEOs. Uh, would have a secretary print the email out. They would dictate their response and then have the secretary type the response to the email. Uh, and so I'm not sure that particular CEO or executive director was looking at any executive reports. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's still to this day, I'm still amazed for many small and mid-sized nonprofits, Jay, and I'm going to hop on a soapbox here for just a second. I'm still amazed that when the donor database and the, you know, all the record keeping uh, associated with that is the lifeblood of funding their mission, that we still have in many organizations, the person that's in charge of running that database is the lowest paid person in the office. And their entire goal in their life is to get to another position at office that pays a little bit more. So you have a constant turnover of the person responsible for the CRM or the database. Mm. And that just strikes me as totally crazy and absurd in some areas because uh, then all of a sudden they're not sure they can count on the record keeping to be accurate or that they can the reporting to be accurate if someone's not astute enough to be running it properly. And that was always, you know, it was part of the magic we brought to the table with Fundmaster and with eTapestry and with Boomerang we knew that there was a lot of turnover in that particular role. So we blanketed all of those products with unbelievably strong customer support and day-to-day -day service. You know, if you wanted to go online and chat with us or pick up the phone and call us, we would stay with you. Even if we were helping you run that same report for the 13th month in a row, we would patiently help you run that report and take the 15 minutes on the phone that it takes to do that just so that organization could be a little bit more successful. Well, and and for those who didn't live through that time, uh, that was pretty important because a lot of us went from manila folders and three by five cards into right. a system, uh, into Fundmaster or others, but Fundmaster was, was, was pretty substantial in the marketplace. 
and then be able to start thinking about the donors. But that meant that somebody had to kind of govern that system, but they often weren't hired for that purpose. They just were kind of in this quasi administrative role, but that's, right. but that really diminished the impact they were having, the relationship. It with really was. And, 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 I, and, I, and I think so many vendors in this marketplace still forget how important that customer service is. Mm-hmm. Uh, every company I was fortunate enough to be the CEO of, I had this magic little trick that I did that all you had to do was overstaff your customer support department by one or two people, and you would have phenomenal customer support. Whereas other vendors in the marketplace were thinking about outsourcing it to you know, another country. Uh, to some low-cost provider that didn't speak English very well or didn't speak Spanish very well. Uh, so, uh, and I always thought, wow, they, you know, if you know that the easiest sale you make year after year and provides, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50% of your sales is based upon referrals, why not blanket your customer base with extremely strong customer support? And right. that was something that that original founder of Fundmaster, his name was Gene, taught me in those early days. He said, you know, if you can provide the best customer support, you will have the best referrals and the easiest sales going forward. And I, I never left that mantra. I always kept that strong and right there close to my heart. That, um, and that, I know that's also the core of retention, which has been something you've built across your career, across all these companies and across the sector. But be, even before we get there, um, you, you went from this sales role to leading the company and then right. eventually the sale of the company. So how, right. how did that transition occur? And then how did you decide and your colleagues decide it's time to, to make this sale and move on? Well, in the case of Fundmaster, I was not a stockholder there in the business. So uh, the company had been sold before I was made CEO to Epsilon. Mm-hmm. And then I always remember getting a call on a Saturday morning wanting me to be in Boston on Monday. And I looked at my wife and I said, well, my dear, either <laughs> I'm getting replaced as CEO and they're asking me to step down or they just sold the company without telling me. And I was informed that the company was sold on that Monday morning. Uh, wow. What and did that I feel said, like? uh, betrayal in some respects, uh, surprise, uh, yeah, all sorts of feelings, uh, for that. But that was my first endeavor and my first, you know, chance to be part of, corporate acquisitions or corporate, you know, uh, things of that nature. And it was very interesting that the company that had purchased us had made the decision that this is well, well before COVID, that if someone, if anybody in our company that wasn't willing to move to their part of the, you know, it was all the way across the country in another city to be there, that everybody was going to lose their job. And I had 120, 130 employees so my first job was to help all 130 of those people find their next endeavor because they did not want to leave their friends and family and all and move to another city. I think we had one employee that moved to that other city. Um, once again, you're providing, you're putting a spotlight on something which a lot of people will never experience, which is being with a company, then getting in a position of, you know, influence, um, responsibility, and then needing to not just deal with what this kind of change means to you and your family, but to 120 other families. Yep. So got to see it, got to see it yeah. very close at hand. I, I watch people. I had many ladies that worked for me in my implementation support, technical services department, et cetera, sales, et cetera, all, across all the departments. And sometimes they were the major breadwinner for their family mm-hmm. and they had children in school and they go, what am I going to do? There's not too many companies where at that point in time, a female could be the major breadwinner. And so it was, it was very shocking uh, and dismaying to some of them, but fortunately we found literally 95% of them their next job. So it was a, it it took several months, but we were able to make that happen because uh, you know, I knew a lot of other people in the tech community in Indianapolis. And so I could say, you know what, you can't go wrong with this individual. This is someone that's worked for me for several years. And you don't even bother asking me if I would rehire them again. I said, I would not start my next business without having them be part of it. Yeah. 
Are you still in touch with some of those folks today? Oh, absolutely. The, one of the really wonderful things about social media, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and all is that you're linked to all these people. And so I still get to see what's going on in many of their lives. In fact, just before I went online here, I went on the social media and wished happy birthday to a couple of people that were uh, fun master employees, ironically, Jay, that their birthday was either today or yesterday. So that was a big, that was a big transition for you. They said, okay, company's been sold. So what, what about you now that you, I know you had to work for several months to take care of all these, these friends and colleagues, but what about you and your, your family? What, what happened next? Well, uh, it was an interesting story. I, I met with the CEO of the new company and I came uh, with a whole business plan saying that, you know what, AOL is starting up email and doing a lot of things. And I said, I think this internet might stick around and we might want to think about making a product that runs over the internet because literally, Jay, the first seven to eight minutes of every customer support call was figuring out okay, what type of hardware are you running the software on? How much memory do you have? What printer are you using? Are the printers connected properly? Have you upgraded to the right operating system? At one point in time in Fundmaster's life, we were supporting 26 different versions of the software because of the different operating systems and things that they were running on sure. uh, to do that. And I said, if you ran it over the internet, everybody would be running on one version and you could eliminate the first eight minutes of every support call. Um, that proposal was turned down. Uh, and, uh, so I negotiated, uh, a non-compete that allowed me for two years to, uh, work, uh, for another company at the higher end of the market. I ended up working for a, a company called, uh, that had a product called team approach, uh, during that time, heading up sales for them and myself and, three of the former employees of Fundmaster or Master Software created the prototype over the internet for a little product called eTapestry. And two days after my non-compete expired in September of 1999, we went live with a product called eTapestry and really never looked back. Uh, we said this was going to be the first internet one. And I think we beat to the market by a month or two Salesforce uh, bringing out their product. So when Mark Benioff listens to this, he should, he should remember that. That's a, <laughs> yes. that's a very important and, fact. Well, I, and, and I had extreme motivation. I mean, corporate IT departments knew how to run operating systems and stuff. Small and mid-sized nonprofits trying to run a Novell network or a local area network back in that time, that was just asking for total chaos. I mean, they they had no more business running that than they did trying to own a a, a Navy battleship and, and maintaining it. I mean, it was just totally off the charts crazy that they were trying to run these local area networks because no one there had any expertise. And usually it was a board member's cousin's child that was that set up the network and then went off to college and no one knew how that person set it up. So they would try to rely on our support team to troubleshoot it. Well, you got to the heart of something right there, and it was different, I guess, what well, must have been with the tapestry from what it was like at Master Software. And for that matter, for most of the marketplaces, I remember, which is that you were focusing uh, with eTapestry on the 95% of the market that's small, that, uh, exactly. that's under $5 million. I, I and mean, little and little did I know with myself and my co-founders uh, uh, you know, that were part of it that that lower end of the market would be the last ones to get high-speed internet. They were still running on dial-up modems. Remember oh, wow. where you took the phone and you put it into the yeah. coupler and it made all the weird noises right. and it would operate at 12 or 14 or 1600 baud uh, to do that, which meant that the screens refreshed very slowly if you did not optimize them uh, mm -hmm. for that. So our first customers uh, that used eTapestry, when they would go from screen to screen, it would literally take three or four or five seconds to go to screen to screen uh, to do that. And so we had to keep optimizing it to uh, get it down. So it would be a, just one or two seconds uh, to do that. But that served us very well because as people got high speed internet, uh, then all of a sudden we were zooming then and we could go through and do, you know, 
queries and reports on vast amount of data because we'd already optimized the system. But this was about the little guy, and that must have been a decision. Was it a business decision? Was it a personal oh, decision? Oh, yes. Very much so. Very much so. Because first of all, when you bring a new product out on the market, it doesn't have all the functionality of the incumbents. Right. You know, if I wanted to make a gift and have it split the gift and have part of it go to the building fund to take care of my and pay off part of my pledge and part of it to cover my sponsorship of the event and the other one to be my annual gift. So I wanted to split it three ways. And by the way, on the third split, I wanted to make that memory of my late uncle Harry, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to do that. Those types of transactions, you're not going to do when a product first comes out the door. So there was no way I was going to try to go take care of Notre Dame University or Methodist Hospital or, you know, the uh, Nature Conservancy. I had to work for so-and-so's women's shelter out west of town. You know, that you, was... The, the, did you have a goal, though, that. of moving from small to large, or did you oh, just yeah. think, well, time. Yeah, these people as need the, service, the, too? Yeah, as the product it was enhanced, we could keep moving up market a little bit. But we always knew that we really were not going to be the solution for universities or national nonprofits. That was, we, we were still always working with the folks that were basically $10 million and under in annual revenue. That was our, that was our core market, which, as you said, is 96, 97% of all registered nonprofits. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they need, they need this kind of support to, today. I mean, it's not just, oh, yeah. Back yeah then. It's still, it's still very much the case. Yes. Yeah. Um, so with uh, with these organizations, I, I I seem to remember that one of the things that eTapestry was doing was saying if you had under 500 records, it was free. Right. We also took it to the next step and said, let's let's build a farm system. Okay. You know, you don't jump in and start playing for the Washington Nationals. You come up through their single A and double A, and et cetera. I said, well, right. let's start and see if we could help some really small nonprofits, and then. As their record size increases, we can get them to start paying at first of all subsidized levels and then at the full level. Ironically, uh, a, a story that I don't often tell, it, you know, right now the base price of most systems is still $99 a month. Mm-hmm. And when we started eTapestry, my co founder was a gentleman by a dear friend by the name of Steve Rushi. You probably know Steve, Jay. And we decided that our first trade show was going to be the uh, Association of Fundraising Professionals uh, show in Chicago. And we decided we built our own trade show booth and we loaded it in his pickup truck and we're driving to Chicago and we get to about Lafayette, Indiana, which is about a third of the way to Chicago, Jay. And I look at Steve, I said, what if someone asks us what the price of this is going to be? So I take out a legal pad <laughs> And I started figuring out what people were paying for in-house systems like Fundmaster and Razor's Edge. And I said, okay, let's figure it out. And I, for some reason, I figured out what if it would be if I divided that by, if I paid for it just less than three years. I said, let's do it over 29 or 30 months or 31 months. I forget what it was. So I, I took a typical price, divided it. And I said, that's how much they'll pay per month. And we came out of the box at $99 per month. Back in 1999, and that's still the base price of most systems today in 2023. <laughs> and it was on Jay Love's legal pad, <laughs> riding shotgun in a pickup truck on my way to Chicago to set up a homemade trade show booth. And we uh, we got there and we went to a little print shop and made up some pricing sheets. And that was our list price uh, for it. And we. Sent, we faxed one of the pricing sheets back home and told the, uh, our other members of our team to put it up on the website. And that's where our initial pricing came from. But the idea of giving it away to those who couldn't afford it, that was, that was about it. That was a couple of years later. We decided, you know, uh, we were far enough along. We knew we were over the hump. And I said, you know, it's a way of building people that learn how to use the system and can move up. But it yeah. also was a way of giving back to the market. Right, because there's a cost. If you're still putting so much emphasis and energy into the staffing and, and time of supporting the clients so they can grow with you and grow themselves, there's a cost for those people right. who aren't paying. Yeah. Um, now, I got, I got to tell you a story now. It was limited to up to 500 records, Jay. Right. And we could always watch how many records people have because at the end of the month, 
if they were over 500 records, we would go ahead and send them the bill for their subsidized price. I think it was like $29 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we had one account that would get during the course of the month or the quarter, it would get to 505, 506, 510 records. And right before the last day of the month, it would go back down to 500. And I watched this happen month after month. And so I said, give me the name of that account. And I called and I talked to the operator that was running the system. And I said, I notice you're doing this. And she goes, oh yeah, my boss doesn't know that I've got this system. And if we had to start paying for it, I'm afraid he would take it away uh, from me. So I take it, I, I cut down the records to that. So it does it. I said, tell you what, if you'll put your boss on the line, let me talk to him. And I promise you, even if he doesn't want to pay for it, I'm going to let you go above the 500 record level for the next 12 months and Jay Love will pay for it. Okay. So I talked to the boss and I goes, yeah, I thought she was using something. And you know what, Jay, you go ahead and send me a bill. I said, well, put me back. I want, I want to talk to Linda and find out what's going on. So he put me back in touch with Linda. And I said, Linda, here's what's going to happen. Your boss is a great guy going to do it. You're home free. But I said, I just got to know, how did you know which five to 10 donors to get rid of? Now, here's where the wince comes into play. She goes, it was simple, Jay. I just took the five or 10 most recent additions and took them away. (laughs) And I go, I go, Linda, you really don't want to do that. And I said, if you have those names from the last six months, you've been doing it, please put them into the system and, and catch up. But hand on a Bible. That's what she told me. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, the thing is that is as unique as that sounds, she probably wasn't unique in trying to find oh, a way to work around no what idea. she saw as the, her boss. Once again, once again, she was the lowest paid employee of that office. Right. And a few months later, she was in another position helping with doing the direct mail or something where she made a little bit more money to support her family. I wonder how much of that has changed. Let's hope a lot but I don't think it has in small nonprofits. So anyway, you're there, you've got ETAP, you've, and it's totally under your control. Before you were the, exec, the senior exec, but it right. wasn't your company. And right. that, by the way, was sold to, uh, to BlackBot, I believe. Is that right? Yes, From, it was. Yes, both, okay. both Fundmaster and, uh, and the other were. And so when did you do the, why, when and why did you do the ETAPistry? Uh, well, ETAPistry, we were, you know, you often hear about something be ahead of their time. We were ahead of our time and we were literally about to run totally out of money. We had used the uh, savings that four of us had put in. We had six angel investors that had helped us and we just weren't adding customers fast enough because, you know, we would have professional fundraisers that loved our product. It would go to the board at the board meeting. They would say, you're going to put all of our donor records out on the internet. Okay. Yeah. And they would veto it. Now that changed with two wonderful little case studies, Jay. I had a very uh, high end private school, one of the high end boarding schools that wanted to go with our product. Uh, They were on the East coast, as you might guess. And they, the board voted it down and three months later, the development office was in an old English Tudor house, and the entire house burned down, burned all their computers, burned all their backup files. Oh, wow. And the lady that was the professional fundraiser, she was so astute. She said, Jay, you know, about four months ago, I sent you some diskettes to see if you could price a a quote, would you still happen to have those? And I go, look, I, I said, I think I do. Let me check. And I verified it. I said, but would it be possible that we could put this to a vote for your board again, that we be, could start with e-tapestry with those diskettes since I'm providing it for you? It was a unanimous vote by the board to get their product, their database out of in-house and on the internet where we backed it up twice a day, every day. And we made a video case study out of that, and that was a great one. We had another one. This took place in Colorado Springs, and in Colorado Springs, there's many 
Christian-based organizations, as you know. Mm-hmm. And one of these Christian-based organizations had their software on, in, on a local area network. And they, too, wanted to go with eTapestry. They liked it. They had sent me some data. And they, a few months later, they were having a birthday party for one of the employees. And they were in a strip center. And they had all walked down to a restaurant. Well, the last person out left the door unlocked. Oh. While they were at lunch, guess what was stolen from the office? The file server. And when they tried to load the backup, the backup didn't work. They had never checked the backup. They had never tried loading the backup to do that. And I know this was happening 75% of the time across all nonprofits. Whereas with eTapestry and all the online services now, we back up their data multiple times a day and check it. So this person called me in a panic too. And I said, yes, I can help you. Can can we take it to the board? Once again, the board had a change of heart, voted unanimously, move forward to it. But these two occurrences occurred too late, uh, Jay, for us to do it. So we were about to go out of business. And we, uh, I had a mentor at Indiana University that his roommate in college happened to be a venture capitalist in Boston. And he introduced, Terry introduced me to this uh, firm and they were kind enough to make an investment in tapestry. In fact, they made a multiple, multiple million dollar investment. So we never had to look back. Uh, and it allowed us to hang on until people got higher speed internets and until it became more accepted to do that. But it literally took five years, Jay, before boards started saying it was safe to put the data out on the internet. I yeah. mean, it was, it was scary potatoes to people. And I still remember the board meeting. We had a board meeting in Indianapolis and the gentleman from the invest from the venture capital firm came in and said, you know what, Jay, I just hired you an investment banker. And I go, an investment banker? Why would Jay love an investment banker? Oh, no, no, it's not for Jay. It's for eTapestry. You know, we're about at the end of the life of our fund and we need to see if we can sell your business so we could return the, the return to our limited stockholders. And ironically, the limited stockholders, many of them were endowment funds for universities and endowment funds for national nonprofits. They had invested a portion of their money into the venture capital firm to get a higher rate of return than they could the stock market. Mm-hmm. And so we went through the whole process with the investment banker. And lo and behold, the highest bidder was uh, Blackbaud, the purchase. So uh, we became part of Blackbaud, but we were fortunate after going through what I did before that we set up a lot more, some guardrails so that all the employees were kept, the location was kept in Indianapolis and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a much, much better transition. And it actually worked out very, very nicely for a lot of the employees there for that, to be be able to do that. Just as you're talking about this, it strikes me that, again, people who were newer to the market, uh, newer to fundraising, newer to philanthropy, they have potentially grown up using the cloud, maybe right. cool. Oh, they no, have right? no idea. At, right. at the at the very last re- release I shipped out of, of uh, Fundmaster, it was a box that had 22 diskettes in it. You right. had to load one after another in the exact perfect order with the exact perfect steps, 22 diskettes, make sure you had enough memory in the right operating system for you to go to the next version. Was, do you think there was a, a solid reason why people didn't upgrade and why we were supporting, you know, 20 some versions of the software and the first 10 minutes of every support call was figuring out what version they were on and whether they had enough memory to run it and all. It was, it was nightmarish, you know, and the cloud changed all that. People don't know how easy supporting customers over the cloud is because you can actually go online and look and see what their screen looks like. Right. And I think it's also going to be a surprise to some people that there was so much fear um, associated with this because they weren't used to it. And, and, and there, were, there weren't all the, um, you know, used guardrails in a different context, but guardrails for protecting data that there oh, yeah. are now and that, and that you were obviously employing in order to make it viable oh, for eTapestry. The, day, the first day someone was on eTapestry, their data was hundreds of times safer than it ever was on their local machine. Right. I mean... Most of these people didn't even turn their machines off at night 
the cleaning people that came in the office could look at anything that was on the machines or back it up or take it or delete it. it there, there were very few strong protocols and procedures in place for maintaining the data, protecting it, backing it up, and then restoring the, you know, trying the backup to see if it even worked. I'm even I, I, about... bet, I bet one out of 100 customers of ours ever restored their data to see if, it, if their backup was ever solid. And, and then even in that acquisition, uh, I don't know how much BlackBot was positioning itself as what we now know as a SaaS company. Um, that much of that came through this kind of acquisition process, didn't it? I mean, it was bringing yes, it did. tap. And- it did. They eventually, you know, uh, were able to put the razor's edge out on the cloud. But right. uh, for for quite a while, eTapestry was the only cloud-based product that they had. Right. So th- this is, again, this closed when? Was that, I'm trying to remember, 2007, 2008? 2007. Um, and so then you're, you were there and all the people were protected and all of that was great, but you eventually obviously were hankering to do something new again. Well, so at this I, point, I was stayed, this I, I, entrepreneurial addiction or what was going on? What happened? <laughs> well, I stayed on board with BlackBot for two years, yeah. actually helped them get their first cloud uh, product out the door, the, one, the product that they had for museums and arts and cultural organizations uh, with that. And then... Uh, I uh, took a couple of uh, short-term assignments, uh, being an interim CEO to help with some companies, and then I was going to retire. And the good old folks at AFP decided to have a technology conference, and they were going to hold the first and only one they had in yeah. Orlando. And they wanted me to come down there and be sort of a, a, mas- a master of ceremonies, helping to introduce some of the speakers. Yeah. And one of the speakers that I was introducing was none other than Dr. Adrian Sargent. And his topic, as you might imagine, Jay, at the conference was the unbelievable differences that donor retention can make. And I watched him do a 90-minute presentation where literally three or 400 people were on the edge of their seat, leaning forward, taking in everything. And you know, after a speaker gets done at an AFP conference, there's a long line of people wanting to talk to him. I made sure I was the very last person in line. And I got up to Adrian. I said, Adrian, you don't know me from anybody. But I said, it's about 1030 this morning. I said, you're either going to have lunch with me today or dinner with me tonight because I've got a business proposition for you. I said, I just listened to your speech. And I said, I've been involved in this market for 30 some years. And I said, I've just learned what the magic silver bullet that the Lone Ranger was always talking about. And that silver bullet is donor retention. And I had no idea that the average nonprofit had less than 50% donor retention, but the average commercial business has 95% customer retention. Right. I said, myself and you, we're going to create a product that's going to close that gap. And I said, I think we can change the entire landscape of professional fundraising if we make people very aware of donor retention to do that. So we actually went to lunch and I said to Adrian, I said, what would you think if I got a team together and we developed a product and we said that we, and when it turned it on, the very first thing that popped up, it told every person using the system exactly what their retention was for the last 65 days and how much it's changed in the last week, last month, and last year. And then, more importantly, offered up several suggestions of how to improve it. And that's where Bloomerang was born. And we spent the next year and a half building, creating, massaging, trying to come up with a name uh, for it. Uh, We, of course, first of all, wanted to call it Boomerang because when you throw a boomerang, what does it do? It comes back. It comes back to you. But there, and then we thought, well, no, we'll call it bloom because we're going to help you bloom donor after donor after donor. Well, bloom.com and boomerang.com and boomerang.net, all those were taken. Well, you can't start a company, a cloud-based company without having the right URLs. But when you mash the two together and called it bloomerang, I was able to get all of the URLs 
but.com. So we started off with, oh. you know, all of the others uh, and procured those and then spent the next three years trying to buy out the little nursery in what, uh, in what, what it was in Wakosha, Wisconsin, I think <laughs> the little nursery that bloomerang is a purple lilac flower. And I remember oh. calling the guy on the phone, Jay, and he goes, yeah, I go, you've got the website bloomerang.com. What are you doing? He goes, I'm going to sell more purple lilacs all over the world than anybody. And he goes, and if you want this website, that will be, that'll cost you a million dollars. <laughs> and I go, nah. So each year I would check with him. So it went from a million to 150,000 to 40,000 to 12,000. We ended up buying the website from him three years later for $6,000. <laughs> And all of a sudden, we went from, you know, bloomerang.co, C-O, to bloomerang.com. And we never really looked back after that. So, so that was the, the fun of doing that. And, the, you know, those are the built-in little entrepreneurial stories that, you know, hey, if we could open up a bottle of wine, Jay, I could tell you 50 more. I mean, there's, they, they just start coming. One leads to another. And I just, it's so much fun to share them. Well, okay. So you've been doing the Bloomerang story for a while now this is since when did you actually officially launch was that 20 uh, 2009 i think Nine. no no excuse me no it wasn't till 2012 2012 oh. 2012 okay. and now there, the there are lots of bloomerang customers out there i mean i, I don't know if you yeah i mean that, uh, uh, tens of thousands you know okay. I, I don't know what the exact number is but i think it's approaching thirty thousand. right and, and and i know from a business perspective that the important part of that story is, of course, that you're serving all those customers, the customers are doing well. But when you look at this at 30,000 feet, we're addressing the retention problem. So whether you're doing it with Bloomerang or somebody else, um, but hopefully, you know, doing it well, as, as right. Bloomerang has done for, for people, it means that people can address the biggest problem we've had in the sector and continue to have, which is maintaining relationships. That sounds a lot like the issue you had with that customer who was trying to keep below 500 records. Every time she threw some names out to save yep. a few dollars so she wouldn't get in trouble, she was effectively doing what many nonprofits do, which is neglecting people who love the same things we do. Isn't that the truth? That what goes around comes around, doesn't it, Jay? Yeah. Is it, it really goes back at so much of this business. And that's why I so enjoyed uh, counting on hundreds of really close personal friends that are professional fundraisers is they know the value of building and maintaining relationships. And we're now getting to the point where there are technology tools that truly assist them. They are not just places to keep track of how much someone has given and, and offering them a receipt or mm -hmm. peeling off a direct mail letter or a solicitation email. They now facilitate the building of that relationship and the maintaining of all the touch points and uh, and knowing when is the right time to ask them to increase the level of their giving. Uh, and that's made such a difference in funding missions. You know, I, the, one of the most meaningful things in my life is watching customers that have grown from being a half million dollar nonprofit that they're now a five or $10 million nonprofit, and they've expanded their mission 20 fold. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just such a neat experience to watch them grow and, and serve the needs of our community in so many different ways. So now it's uh, it's been, well, uh, 11 years out and you, you've again gone through a transformation with the company, I believe. What is your right. role? I just Bloomerang recently today? retired. I, st I still serve on the board of, of Bloomerang, but uh, now I'm sort of retired. Uh, and one of the things that I take the most uh, pleasure in and a, a lot of pride is helping a lot of tech startup companies go. And you're not going to believe this, Jay, but the larger percentage of the tech startups that I invest in and serve on the boards of and assist and help with are serving the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. So uh, whether it's helping someone with finding grants or uh, helping people, uh, you know, with all sorts of other items, uh, there's a whole plethora of those. I'm actively involved in several of those uh, doing that. And it's really fun because in those young entrepreneurs that are in their 20s and 30s, I see Jay Love and Steve Rushi or Jay Love and my other co-founders uh, back there doing that. You know, uh, they are uh, there and, 
And for many of them, I actually do monthly mentoring calls where we pick a time of, of an evening, like at eight o'clock. And after they've got their children to bed, they call me once a month or once a quarter and just ask me questions of what I would do on certain situations. And we just have fun talking about it over Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that's, that's still pretty, you're juiced about doing that. It's oh, clear. I can be somewhat drowsy. And I look at my wife and I say, <laughs> I've got a nine o'clock mentoring call tonight. And I, I hop into my office where I'm at right now and turn on my computer. And then for the next hour, I'm helping a young entrepreneur that's doing, you know, video thank yous or something, uh, video thank you emails or something like that. And we just talk about what issues and problems and HR dilemmas have come up. And I just say, here's some suggestions on how I would approach that. And now these companies are all across the, the country, I believe, but you have a, yes, they you are. You have a yeah. tech incubator right there in Indiana still. So you, you have these strong roots there. No, we, we, at one point we had a nonprofit incubator right. that was in the building with, uh, uh, boomerang, but we quickly needed the space ourselves oh, okay. and all. The closest thing I have to a tech onto, uh, incubator is um, we. my wife's kind enough to let me open up our Florida home. We, we, we have a home down here with uh, three children and nine grandchildren. When they come a mm -hmm. few times a week or a few times a year, we, we have to have a place for everybody to stay. Uh, in the uh, early winter, I invite all of the tech companies, the founders down, and we'd have a two and a half day retreat here in Southwest Florida. And we just kick around problems and ideas and have strategic planning sessions and just sit around the fire pit of an evening and uh, kick ideas around. And uh, this group I found, uh, there's about 10 of them that, that come every year and they're very avid. You're, not, you're gonna get the kick out of this, pickleball players. So we, we, we carve out an hour before we begin and an hour late afternoon before we clean up to go to dinner. And we have these little pickleball tournaments uh, and we divide up into teams and all. And the ones that don't play pickleball go for walks or et cetera down here where I live. And it's one of the most fun two or three days that I have each year is having them all come in and mix and match among us. We, you know, we have pizzas delivered or we, uh, you know, pick a restaurant and I'll go out and have a bite to eat and just keep sharing stories and ideas and problems and see if we can help each other. You must be putting them all to shame though on the court. I mean, if you, if your game is tennis and you're doing that for two hours, then you play these guys with, you know, pickleball. Are, uh, do they leave in shame or are they? Uh... I can, even though some of them are in their mid twenties, I can hold to my own. With <laughs> Let's put it that way. So you described this. Unfortunately, we haven't we haven't had any sprained ankles or torn ligaments. It's, <laughs> it's all been in fun and all. But I I may surprise them this year and have a couple trophies, and we may have a three day long tournament and, and award a trophy to the winning team. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a big arc that you've described and a lot of problems that you've solved. It sounds like some you just like recognized on the spot, like you did talking with Adrian or other things that you saw in the shop that you were addressing with uh, a solution, but there are probably things that you're discovering now. So a couple of quick questions there. Well, I think one of the big ones is right now, just to jump in on that, sure. you know, almost all these companies, thanks to COVID have either turned over to become virtual or have started and maintain a virtual one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the biggest one that seems to come up and they're addressing it in really unique novel ways how do you build a corporate culture when people are in 20 different states right. and your your most of your interactions are doing as you and I are today because you know I'm in southwest florida what you are in the, the northeast virginia. somewhere yes virginia uh, for that and we're having this wonderful conversation and sharing stories well how do you do that when you've got 10 employees or 30 employees or 100 employees so that's one of the things that they've really done a good job of sharing a lot of ideas on uh, as well as other key things that are coming up uh, to do that, because you know, um, you know, now that uh, you're everything's in the cloud, you know, mm -hmm. what are the steps to enhance the security, and how do you avoid hackers and, and things like that? So, uh, all sorts of problems that you never would have dreamed of having even ten years ago are now things that we kick around in these strategy and planning sessions. So, is there a, a big one that stands out for you right now? As, as, for example, we head into these big conferences of the year and people are getting back together again, 
for the first time often since the beginning of the pandemic right. that nonprofits are trying to address and need solutions to address? Well, uh, I, I think, are you talking about the nonprofits or the companies that serve the nonprofits? Well, maybe a bit of both. <laughs> okay. Well, I think the nonprofits themselves, many of them are still wrestling with how do you work remotely or partially remotely? I, I think that's a big item. I mean, obviously cloud-based solutions make that much easier right. uh, for that. But I think that's one that they're still wrestling with. I think the other one is the same, same one that the companies that serve the nonprofit. In this day and age when we have so many interactions with social media and with electronic communications and all, how do you pierce through that? How do you become recognized when the typical donor may be bombarded with, you know, a hundred interactions per hour? How do you make your appeal or your campaign stand out from that? So I, I think those are some of the newer things that the nonprofits as well as the companies that serve in the nonprofit are figuring out how do we make our marketing stand out in this new age of ultra communications. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.